thank you all for joining us again today here on site and online. Thank you as well. We're really, you, you really don't know how happy we are to have you here with us. And I just kind of want to start off this way. You know, on the, on the screen, you see the door that you all walked in and the sign you walk, all walked under because we really like to consider Hammock Street as more than a place that you just come on Sundays. We are a community. We're an ecclesia. So it's interesting, the ecclesia is the Greek word that has been translated into the word church, and the word church kind of implies that it's a building, because that comes from a German word that means spiritual building, but it's not. It's a spiritual community. We're always the church, our group together. We're the church, no matter where we are, whether we're here in the room or whether we're out there in the world. So we're really glad that you're here with us and you know what we're all about. We are a community that has been called out by God, set apart by God to follow Jesus, to follow God the Son in order to be his representatives, in order to be his physical manifestation here on earth, his hands and his feet, and where the people were his hands and his feet in this area. And our goal is to be witnesses to Jesus, tell people what we've seen Jesus do in our lives, and then to invite other people to do so as well. Now, If you've been around here for a little while, you know that we love our community and we do things for our community throughout the year. We have neighborhood cleanups. A lot of you guys have participated in that, beach cleanups. Also, we we help feed the hungry. We work with uh, Boca Helping Hands and we do a lot of work with them. We support the needs of the schools around us. We do do school drives and backpack drives and school supply drives, things like that. We, We work with children here in the area. We also actually support a ministry that works with children who are in America, come here from all over the world. We support our ministry partners who work with those displaced people. We support ministry partners that work in the inner city. And we try to do things for people who cannot always do for themselves. And that's important to know as followers of Jesus because we know God has done something for us that we cannot do and we could not do for ourselves. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So let's pray. And then we'll jump in. Hey, God, you're awesome. We love you. We thank you for drawing us together. We thank you for blessing us. We thank you for calling us to yourself and giving us a way to live forever connected to you. So, God, as we dig in this morning to your word, we ask that you would use it to change us, to enlighten us, and to draw us closer to you. God, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have been a part of the Jesus community for a while, what we're going to be talking about is something that you've heard before. It won't be new to you, but we may be speaking about it in a way that you've never really spent much time considering, which is why we're calling the message something for everyone. So here we go. Now, who's here heard of the golden rule. Everybody heard of the golden rule? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly common. Even non-churchy people know what the golden rule is. It comes to us from Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. By the way, it is not do to others as they do to you, as a lot of people think. No, 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 no. That is not what it is. It's as you would want them to you, do to you, as you would wish for them to do to you. 
Well, Andy always calls the call to the followers of Jesus something more like the platinum rule, not the golden rule. Here's Andy's platinum rule. Do to others not simply what you would have them do to you, but do to others as God through Christ has done to us. Now, that's, that's taking the golden rule and just sort of amping it up a little bit for the followers of Jesus. Here's how it works. See, as Jesus' followers, we are called to base our behavior, the way that we conduct ourselves, on the things that Jesus has already done for us. And we are to do that because of the example that Jesus gave us during his earthly ministry, during the time that Jesus lived incarnate in the flesh as a human being on earth. Now, when Jesus was on the planet, he did for others in order to prove, in order to show, in order to demonstrate that he was sent by God to do something for everyone. When Jesus did things to benefit the people around him, he wasn't doing them to reflect anything that God the Father had done in the past. Jesus did the things that he did in order to point forward, in order to point into the future. The reason Jesus performed miracles, the reason Jesus showed compassion, the reason Jesus did some of the extraordinary, extraordinary and unusual things that he did was to illustrate the fact that he had power. So that when he claimed he would do the most important thing he would ever do, people would take him seriously. Jesus treated others with kindness. He treated others with compassion as a preview of what he was about to do for the whole world. And as believers, Jesus has called us to do likewise. Well, today we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture from the New Testament to see exactly how Jesus did the things that we're talking about. Now, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open up to the book of John, John chapter 5. You can also open up on your tablet, on your iPhone, on your Android phone, or, of course, you can follow along on the screen. I always put the verses up on the screen for everybody. Now, the screen verses I'll be putting up come to us from the New International Version. That's an English translation of the Bible. If you have a different English translation you want to follow along with, Knock yourself out, totally cool. They're all very, very similar. You'll be able to follow along as well. Now, before I start to read the scripture, I do want to remind everybody of one thing. Every time we read the Bible, the Bible doesn't read like a novel or like a funny book or like a magazine article. Like, that's not the way to read the Bible. When you read the Bible, we always need to do our best to understand or try to understand the setting of what was going on at the time, the situation in which the writers found themselves, the mood that they had, the mood of the time, the motivation for writing as they wrote, and also their personalities. It was written by different people, and each of the people, of course, had a different personality, so you had to understand. So when we read the Bible, we need to kind of look at all that and say, all right, given all of that, what exactly is going on here? What does it mean? Because when we read these stories, we need to remember that they're all stories of people interacting, real people and real human interaction that took place a long time ago in a location far, far away. Cue the Star Wars music. I mean, that, you know, really, it was happening back then. So anyhow, when it's appropriate, as always, we'll try to point out whatever details that we can reasonably assume about the writing so that we can reflect what actually happened and help us to better understand 
God's word, the Bible, as we read along. Okay, everybody understand that, right? So, okay, here we go. All right. We're going to go to John chapter 5, verse 1 to start us out. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. All right, first off, I want you to recall this or know this for the first time. Jerusalem sits at an elevation of about 2,500 feet, okay? To, to give you some comparison, Boca Raton sits at an elevation of about 13 feet, okay? 2,500 feet, 13 feet. Got that? So, so whenever you read about Jerusalem and people going there, people are always said to go up to Jerusalem. So it doesn't matter whether they're coming from the south, whether they're coming from the north, they all, always have to go up because Jerusalem's up there on a hill, Now, also, we look at the text, and we see it doesn't specify which festival we're talking about. There are a lot of Jewish festivals for which the Jews would go back to Jerusalem to celebrate, but we don't know which one it was here. Now, it doesn't matter here, but just always keep an eye on the fact that when you read the word festival, something special is going on. So anyway, Jesus and his disciples were going up to Jerusalem. We go to verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. I emphasize the word is here because it's important. When we see the word is in this scripture, it helps us date when exactly or when close this text was actually written. So when John wrote this text, the apostle John wrote this text, the temple was still there. It was still standing. If you remember, The temple was destroyed in what year? 70 AD. It was destroyed by the Romans, by the Roman general Titus. So we know that when this was written, this is before 70 AD because he's talking about is, okay? There is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which is surrounded by five colonnades. So the temple is not destroyed at this point, which puts the writing of this passage fewer than 40 years after the events it describes took place, right? So remember Jesus, um, you know, uh, did his grown-up ministry right around 30-ish AD. So that's how we get this picture. In other words, the passage was written very close to the time that the events described in the passage occurred. That's important. When we're looking at the passage, the closer it was written to the time things happened, the more accurate we can assume that it is. All right, moving on to verse 3. Here, back at the temple, a great number of disabled people used to lie. So you see it says used to lie, that we're going to talk about that. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So a bunch of disabled people, we're going to use that word, used to lie by that pool of Bethesda. By the way, if you know Bethesda Hospital in Del Rey, you're going to find out why they call it Bethesda Hospital. All right, so the pool of Bethesda was a Jewish ceremonial cleansing pool known in Hebrew as a mikvah, and the pool was used for the Jewish uh, ritual of purification. That ritual of purification is known in Hebrew as the tevilah. We've talked about that fairly recently. Now, what we don't know from the passage is this. We don't know exactly how many people were there. We know there were a lot of people there, but we don't know how many. But from the language, we know that even though the pool was still there, we just read the is, we know that no one was still at the pool when this was written because we see used to lie. So no one was lying there during the time that John wrote the text. Anyway, when the people were still lying around the pool of Bethesda, they did so because they believed, and here was the legend, that every so often the pool of Bethesda would bubble 
Okay, so it start to, the surface would start to bubble because as it went, they believed that invisible angel would come and stir the waters of the pool. And they believed that when that happened, when that invisible angel came and stirred the waters, they believed the first person who was able to get into the stirred water would be healed. Okay, so that was the belief. It's interesting, the Bible never records that actually taking place. The Bible never shows us anybody got into the pool and was healed, but that's what the belief was. And also, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to mention it. We need to understand that in that time, 2,000 years ago, in that place, people viewed illness and disability very different than we do today. And, you know, it's a funny thing. Today, we kind of look at things through our modern lens, but you, you really can't do that because people thought differently and knew different things and all that in the past, in the recent past, and absolutely in the distant past. But back then, they believed, the people generally believed that illness and disability were caused by something that the person had done to cause it or that the person had done to bring it on. So they looked at a person who had an illness or a disability as somebody who did something they deserved, something that their parents might have done that they deserved. It was sort of a punishment for something that someone had done. Not only that, back then, they didn't look at physicians, at doctors the way we do. Well, let me tell you what that means. Well, first off, as you might imagine when you think about it, there weren't many doctors and physicians around back then. Okay, this, was a, this was an interesting society. The majority of the people were somehow slaves, whether they were, uh, whether they were working slaves or debted, indebted slaves. There, there were slaves. There weren't a lot of educated physician-type people around. And by the way, the physicians that were around were only able to be afforded by the wealthy. So the common people couldn't afford them. If you were poor back then, you were just on your own. So now you get to picture the scene, okay? Because the people in general, the masses of people, believed that the water, this water in the pool of Bethesda, had some sort of mystical healing properties. There were poor people there whom their families obviously had to drop off or who they had to travel there over long distances, but they went to this pool every single day, and they just went to the pool, and they lay by the waters of the pool, and they watched the water because they were waiting for that water to be disturbed so that they could get into the water and have a chance of being healed. Now, we don't know exactly how many people were lying around the pool. You just see the words, the, a great number, but it was a lot of people. So I just want you to sort of in your mind's eye get the picture. There's this pool, and think of a pool. It's a, it's a square, fairly large pool. Think of the pool, and there's a mob scene around the pool. There's just people everywhere around the pool, and they're waiting for the water to be disturbed. It, it could have been dozens. It could have been hundreds. It could have been thousands. But whenever they saw the water disturb, they would fight each other and climb over each other and struggle over each other to be the first one to get in the pool. You had to be the first one in the pool if you ever had a chance of getting healed, at least according to what they believed. Now, so think about this, and if you've seen the movie The Hunger Games, it probably looked a lot like that. And they were just fighting each other and get away from me and all that sort of stuff. But however you picture it, you can imagine that it wasn't a very fun place to be, right? Okay, so... Jesus and his disciples are walking by. They see the pool and they know what's going on there. So here's what happens next. We're going to go to verse 5. One, so there's this one guy who was there at the pool, lying at the pool, had been an invalid for how long? 38 years. Nearly 40 years. Now this is interesting. The Greek word that's translated as invalid is the word asthenia. 
Now, asthenia is a really vague word. We don't exactly know what it means. We just know that it means somebody who had some sort of infirmity. We don't know exactly what was wrong with him. But we do know that whatever was wrong with him, somebody had been bringing him to this pool for nearly 40 years. The guy couldn't walk on his own. So somebody had to get him there. 40 years at the same job, sort of, okay? 40 years, this poor guy had tried to beat everyone out, everyone around him during that mad scramble to get into the purported healing pool only to fail for 40 years in a row. Okay, that's a lot of failure. He, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't walk and he's got all these people around him. So it's tough for him to get over into that pool. So what happens? Well, Jesus and the disciples come up and Jesus sees him lying there, verse six, and he learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time. And here's what Jesus asked the man. He said to him, do you want to get well? Now think about this for Starters, for some reason, out of all the people that were there, dozens, hundreds, thousands, we don't know, out of all the people, Jesus finds this one guy, he picks him out, picks this one guy out, which means that there must have been some kind of conversation between Jesus and the disciples. This is not in the Bible, but I'm telling you what, kind of the way I picture it. Jesus must have turned to the disciples and said, hold, hold up, guys, who's that guy? Like, like, what's that guy's story over there? Like, so someone we don't know, had to tell Jesus what was happening. So someone we don't know, probably one of the disciples, found out what the guy's story was and reports back to Jesus. So he goes back to Jesus and he says, hey, hey boss, that dude's been there for 38 years. And when Jesus hears that, he's like, hmm, interesting. So he makes his way over to the man and just picture how that goes down. So Jesus is fighting his way through the crowd. You know, excuse me, pardon me, watch your back. Excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, watch your back. And then he gets close enough to the guy and he says to the guy, hey, buddy, do you want to get well? <laughs> Duh, right? I mean, 40 years he's been lying there waiting to get well. Do you want to get well? So, like, think about it. Given the situation, you go, that's a, that's a weird question, isn't it? You've been coming to the pool for nearly four decades. It is not in any way a stretch to assume that the guy wanted to get well. Do you want to get well, sir? No, 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 I'm cool. Yeah, just trying to get my tan, working on my base tan for the summer. And I kind of like the vibe here, you know, it's pretty cool. Or, or how about, uh, uh, no, why do you ask? You know, that sort of thing. Do you want to get well? But here's what the man says. The man starts off, sir. He says, sir. He called Jesus, sir. Why am I stopping here? Why is this relevant? Well, it's interesting. It indicates that the guy has no clue who's talking to him. He has no clue who Jesus is. Okay, we'll continue that same verse. Sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get down in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Because that's what people do, right? I mean, they're not thinking of this guy. They're thinking of themselves. They're climbing over him to get into the pool. Clearly, the man had been in this trying to get healed business for 40 years, and he was beginning to lose confidence, right? If you kids haven't seen The Princess Bride, your parents will explain. Verse 8, then Jesus says to the man. So here's what Jesus says to the man, okay? He just asked him a question, do you want to get well? Guy never goes in the pool. Jesus says to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Something he has not been able to do for at least 38 years. 
And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and he walked. So here's the question. Why did Jesus choose this guy? Why did he choose this guy over all the other people that are lying at the pool? Why did Jesus choose him? Did Jesus choose him because he'd been lying there the longest? Maybe Jesus was trying to get famous. If you pick the guy who's been lying there the longest, who's the most hopeless, and you, and you heal him, you're like, boom, everybody knows. You're famous. Who did it? Jesus, he was great. But we know that wasn't the case. How do we know that? Because as we're going to see in a few verses, the man never found out who Jesus was at the time. Jesus just says, get up and walk, and then disappears into the crowd. He doesn't tell anybody who, is, who he is. Jesus' act was anonymous. So why did Jesus do it? Well, that's what we're going to try to figure out. So here's what happens. Jesus heals the man. And the guy was like, oh, snap, I can walk. Like, this has got to be amazing. Imagine you can't walk for 40 years and you just get up and walk. But then the man, then John gives us another detail. So here's some more clues. In verse 9, we continue. The day on which this, the healing, took place was a Sabbath. Okay, so this is on a Saturday. And so this is when kind of the ominous music begins. Dun, dun, dun. Took place on a Sabbath. Why is that an uh uh-oh? Verse 10. The Jewish leaders then said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you from being healed. Nope, doesn't say that. The law forbids you from standing. Nope, doesn't say that. The law forbids you to carry your mat? They didn't say, wow, You're healed. Praise Hashem. The Jews don't say God's name. They use other words around God's name. Hashem merely means the name. If you drive around Boca, you'll actually see this bumper sticker from time to time. Praise Hashem. Basically means praise God. They didn't say that to him or they didn't go, wow, that's amazing. They didn't do that. They informed the guy that he broke the law. They informed the guy that it was against the law to carry his mat on the Sabbath. Now, I just want to take a couple minutes on this because this is fairly interesting. It's actually questionable whether he broke any real laws. He, he certainly didn't break any laws in the, in the book of the law, in the Torah. But he might have, might have violated what may have been considered a law that was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah a few hundred years before. Here's what Jeremiah said. This is in Jeremiah 17:21, which I'm sure you all have committed to memory. No, nobody knows this verse But this is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on Sabbath day. Isn't that interesting? Now, the Ten Commandments did command people to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's kind of vague. So you can imagine after the years that followed, 1,400 years up until this point in the story, the Jews kind of clarified that command of remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy with more specific things they called laws, okay? Jeremiah is written about 800 years or so after the Torah was written. But the question still remained. Does a man's bedding count as a load? I don't know. And what was his bedding? going to imagine it was maybe a blanket, maybe a really thin straw mattress or something. But the point was that the religious leaders saw that this man had experienced a true miracle, but all they could focus on was that they saw the letter of the law violated. By the way, in my observation, I've observed many Christian, what I'll call legalists, who still like to focus today only on the law, not on what's going on. That is a rant or topic for another sermon. I will continue. So, 
the religious leaders here, they call the guy out for carrying his mat. They confront him and they say, hey, buddy, you are breaking the law, you lawbreaker carrying your bedding. And here's what happened next. Here's what the guy said, John 5, 11. He said, the man who made me well, he said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So what does this statement show us? Well, this statement reflects kind of a tension point in the situation. And it's interesting, when you're reading scripture, there's all these tension points. There's always two sides and it's kind of, kind of pull against each other. So this is a tension point. I want you to feel it. So for all intents and purposes, this man chose to listen to what the stranger said. We know it was Jesus. He chose to listen to what the stranger said instead of what he had been taught for his entire life to do under the law. Now, why is that relevant? Well, here's why it's relevant. We just talked about how in those days, the Jews assumed that if a person is disabled, they must have done something bad in order to deserve being disabled. So this guy, this man, had been lying there for almost 40 years and not one religious leader ever did anything for him. Why? Well, because in their minds, they looked at the guy and they thought, you deserve this. You deserve all the misery that you're experiencing. But then this stranger comes along and he does something for the man that he didn't deserve. So maybe, and this isn't in the text, I'm kind of just adding some context here. Maybe I'm spitballing here, but maybe the guy's thinking, here's why I picked up my mat. Because you supposed men of God never did a thing to help me. And then this stranger, I don't even know his name, he walks up and he healed me. That's why I'm carrying my mat. The religious system, this is important, that the man had observed for his entire life, that religious system just left him out there to die, left him out there to rot, could have cared less that he was there for 40 years suffering. But some stranger did for the man something that he could not do for himself. And the stranger didn't even leave his name such a cool story, isn't it? So, this gives rise to an obvious question. So, then they ask, what are they going to ask? Of course, they're going to ask this. Well, who is it? Who is this guy? Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up, pick up your mat, and walk? Now, we we just said the guy had no idea. Jesus tells him to walk, and then Jesus kind of slips back into the crowd. You're picturing Homer Simpson kind of backing up into the bushes. You know, that's kind of what he's doing. Jesus showed the man anonymous, no strings attached, compassion. But why? Well, the story continues. It gets even more curious here in verse 14. So later, Jesus found the man at the temple and said to the man, see, you are well again. And then Jesus says this, which is kind of weird. He says, now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, now, by the way, you see it says later. I don't know how much later. We don't know how much later. If you read the context, it kind of feels like it was later on in the day. Maybe it was later on the weekend. I don't know. But it feels like later on in the day or shortly thereafter. But what about what Jesus said to him? Nice to see you're doing well. Really glad you're doing well. Stop sinning or things are going to get worse. Now, here's a question. What could be worse? What could be worse than spending every day for 38 years lying, disabled, in the Middle Eastern sun, in the middle of a huge and aggressive crowd? I mean, this guy had nothing going for him. He had no life. What could be worse than not having a life? 
Anyway, the man eventually realizes that it was Jesus who had healed him. Here's what he says in the next verse. The man went away, and now he's starting to tell everybody. Now he's a witness, okay? He's telling everybody what he saw God do in his life, and he tells the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. All right, what's up with this? Well, Jesus knew that the man was a sinner, and it appeared that Jesus knew what kind of sin the man had committed, right? So Jesus said something. It sounds like he was kind of on the inside here. So Jesus said to the man, cut it out or else. That leaves the situation like this. Jesus performed an anonymous act of kindness toward a sinner, and when the sinner sinned after the anonymous act of kindness, Jesus didn't take the gift back. He didn't rescind the gift of healing. So the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who'd made him well. And then the story gets really interesting, but a little complicated. I'll do my best to make it clear. Do your best to follow. I think you'll follow just fine because Jesus did this on the Sabbath. So because Jesus did this on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders then began to persecute him. By the way, in this context, this isn't at the moment actually doing things to Jesus as much as it is harassing Jesus, okay? So in response to this kind of harassment, Jesus said this in John 5.17. Jesus said to these religious leaders, my father, God, is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. So he's defending himself. Jesus is defending himself to the religious leaders, and he's saying, my father's working on the Sabbath, so I'm working on the Sabbath. Now, of course, the Jews believed that God could work on the Sabbath, right? God could work any day he wanted. He's God. Like, think about it this way. If children are born on the Sabbath, God's at work on the Sabbath. If people recover from illness on the Sabbath, God's at work on the Sabbath. And that's fine with the religious leaders. But what Jesus did by his response was he equated his actions with God's actions. Now, that was not okay with them, and it didn't go over well with them. And so we go to verse 18. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Again, they're not throwing rocks or stabbing with knives at this point, but they're really pushing to kind of get rid of Jesus here. Not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All right? Now we're going to get an idea of why Jesus did the things that he did that are recorded for us in the Gospels, okay? So Jesus continues here. This is the longer slide here. So John, 5, uh, John 5, 5, uh, 19 through 20. But Jesus gives the religious leaders this answer. Very truly, I tell you, whenever Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, kind of sit up a little bit, scoot to the front of your chair, listen up, because he's saying something important. The son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. So as it turns out, Jesus was indeed saying exactly what the religious leaders suspected. Jesus was saying that he was directly connected to God the Father. Jesus was saying, do you want to know what God is like? then watch me. Pay attention to me. My actions and my work reflect the actions and work of God the Father. 
Can you guess how this went over with the religious leaders? Yeah, not very well. Like, this is a really offensive thing to say to religious leaders. And Jesus was just getting started. Like, he was just getting his mojo rolling and this and that. So he then proceeds to kind of troll the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Those are the two parties of religious leaders. Watch what he says in verse 21. He says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Why did I say that it's a trolling? Because if you'll remember, the Pharisees believed in resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Hence, they were sad. You see, that's how we remember that, okay? Now, it's safe to assume that upon hearing this, the next thought of the religious leaders was probably something like this. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. You've equated yourself with God. And now you're saying you have the power to give people life? You have to imagine the guy who Jesus healed is sitting back listening, going, well, hey, give me my life. Well, that's for sure. You know, he, wow. But the religious leaders are looking at Jesus. They're going, hold up. You've gone too far now. What do you mean you have the power to give people life? How can you say that? To which Jesus could have responded, listen, I wouldn't have said it if I hadn't just done it. Y'all saw me just do this. Because the reason that Jesus was there and the reason that he performed those miracles that he performed throughout his life. And the reason that Jesus helped sinners that he helped, by the way, the reason that he helped all these people who could never, ever pay him back for the help was to demonstrate, was to prove that he'd come to do something, not just for some, but for everyone. And then Jesus spoke of the purpose of his coming to earth. See, on the temple mount, in the temple itself, Here's what Jesus said, John 5, 24. Very truly I tell you, so we're we're paying attention here. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever believes God sent me to do his works and to reflect his purpose for his people, whoever hears what I say and believes me has eternal life. And Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going. You'll have eternal life and you will not be judged. But that person has crossed over from death to life. That person will not be judged. That means that person will not be punished by God for their sin. So Jesus is saying, the reason I gave this man his life back, and I'm going to give you an aside, and the reason he would give Lazarus his life back, and the reason he would ultimately come back from the dead, is so that everyone would know that Jesus came to earth to do something for everyone so that everyone can know because of what Jesus will do, everyone who believes in and everyone who truly commits in their heart to follow Jesus will receive eternal life. That's what he said there. Now, this conversation goes on for a while, and then we get to the part where Jesus says to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, here's what he says to them. Now he's really, he's really coming down hard on them. He says this. He says, you, you religious leaders, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in those scriptures, just studying them, you have eternal life. Remember who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are sort of like the professional religionists of the Jewish community. They were literally, the job was to be professional good people. That's how they thought of themselves anyway. And that's how a lot of the community thought about them too. So if you were to ask a Pharisee, hey, what do you do for a living? They would answer, we're the best people around. 
We follow scripture for a living. Our whole job is just to be good. We are totally in sync with God. We are as good as any man can be. They sound nice, don't they? You want to hang around with them, right? You feel good about yourself when you hang around with the Pharisees, right? Jesus points out to them in this verse that even though you're studying the Hebrew scriptures more diligently than anyone else, looking for the key to eternal life, you're not going to find it by doing that, even though they thought they would. As good as they thought they were, the Hebrew scriptures, studying the Hebrew scriptures, simply didn't give them the assurances they were seeking. The law only gave them a constant reminder of how they failed. So Jesus continues here. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Jesus says, you're looking for a key to eternal life, but what you're missing is this testifying about me. Yet, you've refused to come to me to have eternal life. Jesus says, guys, don't you see it? The whole Hebrew Bible, the whole Old Testament points to me. The entire Old Testament serves as a reminder that you fall short of my standard of perfection. The entire Old Testament is a reminder that you need a Savior. Don't you get it, people? Your whole life, your whole system of sacrificing animals, all the goats, all the lambs, all the pigeons, all point to that one final sacrifice for sin. And that final sacrifice is standing right here in front of you. The the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scriptures, Jesus said, talk about me and you refuse to come to me. You've spent your entire lives thinking if you just obey the law, you will earn, because of what you've done, a right standing before God. But you guys know deep down you're wrong. You know deep down that you're mistaken. And you know what? The same thing's true for a lot of people today. A lot of people think that. Because in our own way, all of us, based on our conscience or based on our religious upbringing or based upon what we think we've seen and what we've experienced, we've decided, and we all do this, if there's a God, I hope, the, I hope this God likes me. I, I hope if there's, a, I, if there's a God, I hope this God loves me. And then what we do is we kind of determine where we must be standing with that God, that God that we've made up in our heads, that we've envisioned. Where do we stand based on our behavior with this God that we think we know? And often, and it applies to people who raise going to church as well, gee, we're really working hard to make sure God loves us. Maybe you're a person that tries to make sure that your own perceived good deeds, in other words, what people see you've done good, outweigh your bad deeds, that kind of scale sort of thing. Or maybe you're a person who thinks, well, I I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than almost everybody I know. And it's interesting because even though you know that you're doing it wrong. I mean, maybe you know, okay, I've done all these good deeds, but when you lay in bed at night, you don't feel the peace. You don't feel peace with God. Because the truth is, no matter how good you are or good you think you are, you'll never find peace with God through your good behavior because that kind of peace isn't there. It doesn't exist. You could chase it all day long. You won't find it. And if you're doing that, you're doing the same thing that the Pharisees were doing. You're diligently seeking for a system of behavior that affirms you in the sight of God. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh, it doesn't exist. That system doesn't exist. And if we're being candid with ourselves, not only don't we live up to God's expectations, we don't even live up to our own expectations for ourselves, do we? I mean, think about it. We can't even stay on a diet, right? We can't even take the minimum amount of care of ourselves, And forget about, if you're married, forget about consistently keeping our wedding vows. 
Remember you swore wedding vows in front of all the people you love and know? And, and whether you're a believer or not, you always fall short of your own standard. I do. Imagine falling short of God's standard. If you fall short of your own standard, think about God's standard. How could you possibly not fall short of God's standard? You need a savior. Well, later in Jerusalem, where Jesus had done so for so many, Jesus would be arrested and he would be tried and he would be crucified. And that afternoon, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked Jesus and they mocked him prophetically without knowing it. They didn't even know that they were mocking him in a way that the scripture said they would mock him. Here's what they said. They said he saved others, but he can't save himself. That was the entire reason that Jesus was sent by God the Father, not to do something for himself, but to do something for you and to do something for me. They didn't realize that they were witnessing God's gift to everyone. Now, here's what we should all take home from today's message. Jesus did things for people, one by one, to prove that he was sent by God with the power to do something for everyone. See, as followers of Jesus, we serve the poor because we're compassionate in light of what God has done for us. Jesus did things for people who could not do things for themselves in order to demonstrate that he had the power to do something for everyone. Paul said it this way in Romans 3.23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who has ever lived, who hasn't even measured up to their own standards, needs to understand that if there is a God with a standard, they'll need to do for them what they cannot do. He'll need to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. And that's why Jesus said in this John chapter 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, believes in God, has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. God the Father, through Jesus, God the Son, has done something for you and something for me that we cannot do for ourselves. And every time you try hard, or every time you recommit or rededicate yourself, or every time you promise God or you promise yourself, I'll do better, You're really just trying to justify yourself based on your ability to do something you simply can't do. But instead of doing that, from now on, how about doing this? How about every time that you do that, let it be a reminder to you that God has already done for you through Jesus what he never intended for you to do for yourself anyway. Now, that's the gospel we share. That's the message we share every week. And as we wrap up today, here's what I want to do. I want to give everybody who's never done so a moment to declare your trust in Jesus. Uh, I want to give everybody just this opportunity to declare your trust in Jesus as the final and full payment for your sin. So here's what I want to do. I want to lead everyone in prayer. This prayer is a declaration reflecting what Jesus said. It's a prayer in which you can declare that through Jesus' life and then his death on your behalf, you know you can be forgiven because the price has been paid 
for eternal life. Now, when you pray this prayer, you can pray the prayer out loud if you want with me. You can pray the prayer silently in your heart. If you don't get all the words exactly, that's okay. God still hears your heart. So if you're with us on, online, if you're with us here on site, I'm gonna ask you now just to bow your heads, close your eyes, don't open them till I tell you, just for a minute. Repeat after me if you, if you can. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus was your one and only son who you sent into this world to pay for my sin. Right now, I transfer all of my trust from my efforts and my promises and my good intentions to Jesus. I'm placing all of my trust and confidence in what he did for me when he died for my sin. From this moment on, I will live for you. Keep your heads down, keep your eyes closed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now wait, keep your eyes closed one more second. If you prayed that prayer, could you raise your hand? Wow. Okay, put your hands down. Our God is an amazing God. Please open your eyes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to pray that prayer. Thank you for the difference that the simple declaration of faith has made and will make in my life. So now, Father, please give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we just decided to do. And then give us the courage to follow through as we declare on this day that we love you, we trust you, and we thank you for drawing us to you for eternity. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with us today, if this is the first time you've done so, come on up if you can. When I head off the stage, just let me know. I'd appreciate that. I want to kind of help you along on your next step. With that, everyone is dismissed. We've got a big surprise for you next week. Uh, looking forward to seeing you back here. I hope you guys have a great week, and we'll see you Sunday.